Join us now for another Brooklyn ball game here at Ebbets Field, Brooklyn, USA. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Hello, everyone, with Bob Prince and Nellie King. This is Gene Osborne speaking to you from Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. Well, friends, here we are back at the Polo Grounds in New York City. We're underway in the first of a Twilight doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. And it's baseball here at Crosby Field. Just the start of things. So pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shave for it, too, throughout the evening. I'm Mike Kozer, and Kansas City Royal legend Frank White is our guest on this week's Lost Ball Parks podcast. He hits a high drive to deep left field, and Landrum goes back, but watches this one go out of there. Second baseman Frank White, who played across the infield from George Brett, spent 18 years with the Kansas City Royals and has to be the only player in baseball history who worked as a member of the construction crew building the stadium that he ultimately would end up playing in. He was part of the construction team that built Royal Stadium, later named Kauffman Stadium. He finished his career with 2006 hits, was a five-time All-Star, eight-time Gold Glove winner, Silver Slugger Award winner, 1980 ALCS MVP, 1985 World Champion, and a member of the Kansas City Royals Hall of Fame. And he is our guest on this week's episode of the Lost Ballparks podcast. You guys got me okay? I gotcha. Really appreciate you doing this. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Where and when did you see your first Major League Baseball game? Oh, my first Major League Baseball game was in Kansas City. Uh, I moved to Kansas City when I was in second grade, and Kansas City A's uh, was the first Major League game I saw. Hello, everybody. This is Jack Buck with Carl Erskine at Municipal Stadium in Kansas City, Missouri, welcoming you to another Big League Baseball game brought your way by the Gillette Safety Razor Company. Walk me through that experience, uh, your, your, your first taste of Major League Baseball at that, uh, that old ballpark. Well, you know, I think uh, as a young kid, you you always amazed at how far the ball goes when they hit it, and you know, and you watch guys uh, play the game and sliding and running over each other and doing everything they can to win the ball game, and crowds getting excited, taking in the old uh, ambience of the stadium, and and knowing that you, you grew up about eight blocks from the stadium, so we could walk to the stadium. My high school was on the west side of the stadium. My junior high school was on the south side of the stadium. Uh, high school's up on a hill overlooking the stadium, so we could sit in our in our high school bleachers and look over and see the games. So it was it was just fun to be able to do those things. But but I think just being able to walk in there and, and see how big it was, and and uh, Charlie Family made it even more uh, spectacular because he had all these things going on. You know, like the umpire, there was a button he could step on, and up out of the ground came this rabbit with a basket of balls on his head. That was the uh, famous uh, Harvey the Rabbit, right? Yeah. <laughs> I remember talking with John Miller, who's the San Francisco play-by-play voice. When Charlie Finley moved the athletics from Kansas City to Oakland, he brought Harvey the Rabbit with him. And John Miller, who was on the podcast in season one, remembers Harvey the Rabbit in great detail. I remember being at the Coliseum the night that he made his debut. Public address announcer, Roy Steele, was reading the script to introduce it. He said, now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, direct your attention to the area of our home plate. And here is little Harvey. And, and little Harvey not only came up, but he, he had lights on him and they were flashing and, and whatnot. He was so fascinated <laughs> with Harvey the Rabbit. I know. And then they had, uh, he had Charlie Oldemule and Charlie would parade around the stadium. And out in right field up on the hill, uh, he called it Lamb Chop Hill. And he would put uh, sheep up there. And then in the right field corner, he had a, a ragtime band. It, I mean, he was one of the early innovators. Charlie, he was one that really got players out of those old flannel cotton wool blend uniforms and and that's when the polyester uniforms came out he designed those and 
they became very popular right away. And so as a kid, when you're at Municipal Stadium, you're literally just down the road from some of the world's best barbecue, including, I, I think, Arthur Bryant's, right? Well, you know, there was a good stretch of barbecue joints starting at 23rd in Brooklyn at Harris Barbecue. Then you went right on down to 18th where there was Arthur Bryant's. Then went on down to 12th Street where there was Gates Barbecue. So a lot of those historic barbecue places and, and Gates and Arthur Bryant's are still there. As kids, we would collect pop bottles and and then we would go to the local drugstore. We would cash the pop bottles in. Then we'd walk in Arthur Bryant's and we couldn't afford the the, uh, the meat, but we'd buy a whole bunch of fries and a couple of big bottles of soda. And, and then we'd go sit in the bleachers and watch Ross games. So it was fun. Yeah, I bet. I mean, you would have had the A's, the Kansas City Athletics, until 1967. Then the team moved to Oakland. A couple of years later, in 69, you got the Royals playing a municipal stadium and they played there until, I think, 72. Now, Ewing Kaufman was the first owner of the Kansas City Royals. Basically, the reason that I got in the baseball business that I thought the people of Kansas City in this great metropolitan area should have a Major League Baseball team. Pretty innovative and visionary guy. I mean, first of all, yes. he built Royal Stadium, which was later named Kaufman Stadium, uh, which remarkably was the only baseball-only facility in the big leagues between 1966 and 1991. For those who have never been, what makes the K so special in your mind? Well, I think the history of it where it sits, easy in, easy out, uh, the tailgating, the history of winning from 69 to probably 90. was We had a lot of winning years there, uh, two World Series, one World Series championship. Then they came back with new players at the championship in 2015. So just the history that you develop over time. Um, my whole career was there. A lot of great players played there. And then the complex itself, having Kauffman Stadium and Arrowhead Stadium in the same complex makes it even more special to the fans and to to the community. I think it's one of the best ballparks in the majors. So uh, I agree. I agree with you. Yes. After the Royals began play in 1969, Kaufman opened the Royals Baseball Academy in Sarasota, Florida. The idea was mm-hmm. to sort of to bring athletes to the academy and teach them the game of baseball. He really felt like, hey, look, there's got to be another way to get some good players, some good athletes other than the draft or through trade. Right. What's interesting about all that is that I think other owners at the time and players mocked him for the idea. You know, yes. they thought like, well, okay, so you're going to you're going to contact all these athletic directors across the country in high schools and they're going to send you athletes who have never played baseball before. This is a terrible idea, but it was actually way ahead of its time. Well, you're right. I mean, he he thought that there should be other ways to find players. Uh, the scouting system wasn't as sophisticated uh, as it uh, as it should have been, a lot of the white scouts didn't want to go into the black neighborhoods uh, during that time. And he held tryout camps all over the United States. You didn't have to have baseball experience, but you had to be a good athlete, be able to run, throw, and and they would bring people in to kind of help teach you the game, so to speak. They brought in Ted Williams. And the thing we're trying to do is be quick with our hands and wrists. And they would teach you different aspects of the game and. What were the experiences like with uh, with Ted? Well, basically, you know, he talked hitting. I mean, we were, we were just in awe. We just kind of listened. As you start to move into the pitch, your hips open up slightly, your hands following. As the bat comes through and you meet the ball, your wrists have not broken as yet. After he finished uh, his presentation, and that, then we went to the field, and and they had everybody trying to hit like Ted Williams. And but that was that was one of the uh, the weird things about the academy was that. It wasn't a lot of individualism. It was like whoever came in to teach something, everybody had to try to do it that way. And then over time, we realized that that wasn't going to work. You have to still work with guys within their abilities to try to do certain things. Everything that we did was an experiment. Had you not been invited to this Royals Academy, 
You may have never played Major League Baseball because I think up mm-hmm. to this point you were largely unscouted, undrafted. Mm-hmm. And at 20 years old, you end up at the camp. Now, to me, that's crazy because here you are, <laughs> one of the greatest defending uh, second baseman of all time, and you may not have played had it not been for the academy. Well, you know, everybody needs an opportunity. And, and regardless of how that opportunity comes, then it's up to you to take advantage of it. And it wasn't a money thing because we only made 50, 50 bucks a month. Uh, and we got a $50, $50 a month raise every 90 days. So you're not going to make a hell of a lot of money. But you got, <laughs> but you had, but you had room and board and you had uh, an opportunity to go to junior college and you had an opportunity to have a career. And, and that's what uh, I decided to do was I, I knew I was a good athlete. Uh, I didn't play high school ball. I just played 30, 35 games in the summer. And I knew that if I could learn the fundamentals of the game, it would make me that much better player. Looking at how fast the transition happened. You know, like you said, I was a month from turning 20 years old. From my 23, I was in the big leagues. And it's simply because I learned how to play third, short, second. And so I went to the big leagues. I went as a utility player and not as a, a heralded number one draft choice or, or someone like that. So I had to work hard once I got to the major leagues. So you appeared, by the way, in, in 1,914 games with George Brett and had a, mm-hmm. a front row seat for that incredible <laughs> 1980 season, not just for the team, but for obviously right. Brett, who hit 390 that year. Have you ever seen a hitter more locked in? You know, when you're going through it, a lot of things you miss, too. And, uh, you know, it seems like uh, he would be real hot. And then whenever it seemed like he was ready to cool off a little bit, he'd get hurt. And then he then he come back. He's hot again. And he gets hurt. So if you look at it, he only played 117 games that year. But that that was such a great year because uh, he's probably the best clutch hitter I think I've ever played with. George Brett hits it to right field. Is it three in a row? Yes! Ha, ha, ha! Incredible! What a performance! And I think that uh, that year, like Willie Wilson had 200 hits, 100 hits from each side of the plate. How McRae drove in 133 runs. Uh, Willie Aikens had a great year. It was it was one of those years that everything just sort of fell in place. And and George was the uh, was the icing on the cake because every time uh, he stayed around 400, everybody would say, "Oh, this guy's going to hit. He's going to hit 400." And he's at second base with his helmet in the air. And when he goes over 400, and I mean, it was a very exciting time. How about that, George Brett? This man has gotten more hits since the All Star break than a lot of players will get all season. <laughs> his batting average since the All Star break. 520. I mean, he had a press conference every day. They just added all the uh, the ambiance to the team because, you know, being from the Midwest, you know, you needed all that, all that heaped up on you because we would just say, I can't wait to go to New York. I can't wait to go to Boston because, you know, the East Coast is where uh, if you're going to play well, that's where you want to play. You know, Detroit, places like that. Yeah, like a Tiger Stadium, Yankee Stadium, right. Fenway Park and sure, and, and sure. all this. It's like electricity around Brett and the team in 1980. Yeah, you always read about the Jim Rices and the Fred Lins and the Rod Carews, which is great. They're great ball players, But someday I'd like to pick up a paper and read about George Brett. It, it was awesome. I mean, uh, everywhere we went, George Brett and the Royals, you know, then. It was just so much fun to, to be a part of that team uh, because it wasn't nothing we couldn't do. And we had the excitement to go with it with George going after Ted Williams. <laughs> well, and I want to talk about that 1980 team in, in just a second. But I, I do want to say this, that, Frank, you were one of the smoothest second basemen I've ever had the chance to see play. You won the gold glove eight times, including six in a row from 77 to 82. <laughs> and, and I think it's 77 you go 62 straight games without an error, which mm-hmm. I, when you're playing a middle infield spot and you're getting balls blasted <laughs> at you every single day, that is an, an incredible feat. Do you have a special place that you kept your glove? And do you still have that glove that you use during those seasons? It's in the shadow box uh, at the house. It's amazing. I mean, I when I started playing, I always wanted to be the best 
second base when I played the game. I worked hard to, to get that done. I would, I didn't think I'd be that successful. I thought maybe winning one gold glove would be okay, but uh, I look up and I had won six in a row. And then all of a sudden there's a three-year drought when Lou Whitaker popped up. And then, then after that, then I won a couple more after that. Uh, two second basemen can dominate uh, for that long on, on defense in the, in the league. So yeah. I, was really, I was really excited about it. So besides Kauffman Stadium, what was your favorite old lost ballpark to play in during that time? I love playing in Yankee Stadium. I love Tiger Stadium. Uh, I thought that was one of the best hitting stadiums uh, out there, 360 in the alley. They had the, the double decks in right field, but the the, the uh, overhang of the bleachers made it easier to hit it there than hit it in the lower deck. Just the nostalgia. Even the Comiskey Park, you know, was another one that was fun to play in. I think when you went west to Anaheim, it was more of a modern type stadium. So, so similar to what you played at home. One of the weirdest ones that we played was Cleveland. You could have... 20,000 people in the municipal stadium there, and they can make it sound like it's 50,000. It, it was, I don't know how they did it, but it, and then you had the drums going and all that other good stuff. I was, I played in the 81 All-Star game there, and, and we had 80,000 people there. Ladies and gentlemen, it is now time to meet the 1981 All-Star squads. It, it was something to behold. I mean, they were loud, and it was fun, and probably the most fun I've had in Cleveland uh, as a player because uh, of, of that All-Star game. Look out, hit deep to right center field, way back. It was different then uh, because it was American League versus National League. And you go and say hi to the guys that you admired and on the National League side. And then the guys that you play with uh, throughout the year, you just had that mutual respect. Uh, you know, you're an all-star. You play the game the right way. We're here to try to win this all-star game. And guys sharing stories. And I don't know, back then, the game was a little more physical. So you, you talk about guys taking you out at second base and but I think the biggest thing is just you have know, mutual respect for each other and congratulating each other on being all-stars. And then the focus at that point is just go win the game. Now, speaking of taking people out on second base, that brings up something I was thinking about last night for you playing second. Was there anybody when they got on first that you thought, <laughs> okay, I'm going to watch, have to watch out for this character because I know he's coming in like a freight train. It, it was a few guys. Uh, Kirk Gibson was one, Brian Downey, Don Baylor. Even Frank Robinson. There were some guys that were pretty, it could be pretty devastating coming down through there. But, you know, one of the things about playing on turf, you know, I would look over and to see what type of shoes they have on. So if they had turf shoes on, then I'd hang in there a lot longer. They had spikes on, then you, you have a different approach. But you just have to show no fear. You know, you have to just throw the ball right down through the line. And if they're in a way, they get hit. If they, so, but it was, there was no rules on how guys slide. So, so you just had to figure out a way to protect yourself. And the best way to protect yourself is just be in the air if you're going to get hit. That way, your spikes don't get caught in the ground and you don't get knee injuries or anything like that. But I just treat everybody kind of like a bullfighter. You know, you give them one leg and then when they slide, you take it away and, and do a little pirouette and get out of the way. I did have good good vertical. And so I use that a lot. I always use the bag and, and just try to use the bag to get me up higher. So in 1980, the Royals played the Yankees in the ALCS. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to Kansas City. It is beautiful, summer-like, 88 degrees, just perfect, full house looking on, and here we go again. The Yankees and the Kansas City Royals meeting in the playoffs for the fourth time in five years. The Yankees had six more wins, I think, that season. They finished with 103, and uh, but the Royals were playing with a chance to advance to their first-ever World Series. 
Game one is at Royal Stadium, bottom of the second, and you come through with a huge double. Hit in the air to shallow left again. Pinella has to come charging in. Catch and two runs score. The throw to second is too late. That was a turf double. <laughs> sort of toward the end of the bat a little bit, and I think Lou Pinella was in left field. So Lou Pinella, who made the brilliant play, has an easier one here but can't handle it. Back then, if you don't understand the turf, when it's warmer, it expands and the ball bounces higher. If it's colder, it stays down and plays more like regular ground. And I knew that the way I hit it, he would if he didn't get there, he'd have to jump up and, and keep the ball from going over his head. So then I was able to get a double on that play. So it was, it was great. That was a fun time for me. You pick up three hits in game one, two hits in game two. And with the Royals leading the series 2-0, you head back to Yankee Stadium for game three. And then there's no score in the fifth. Frank White standing in. And you come to the plate to face, I think, was it Tommy John? Tommy John. Uh-huh. Tommy John. This one is hit deep to left field. It's going to be gone. Home run, Frank White. Touch him all, Frank. So what do you remember about that at bat? Well, you know, I know Tommy, uh, you know, he didn't have the uh, fastball that he used to have in the past when he was with the White Sox and kept the ball down and uh, changed speeds. And so I spread it out a little bit more. I wanted to wait as long as I could. And Locke hit low balls. Uh, they were knee high and, and to the inner half of the plate. And he just left the ball right there perfect for me. And and I was able to hit it in the left field bleachers, which was uh, one of those dream come true things, you know, <laughs> they just let it. I just really felt like I was just in a different place. It was our game to win. It was our series to win. After losing three straight years to the Yankees, it was, I think everything just fell in place for us. So you finished that series uh, batting 545, win the MVP, the ALCS MVP. The Royals mm-hmm. ended up losing to the Phillies in the 80 World Series. I mean, the Phillies were nuts that year. But five years later, you and your teammates were back, this time facing the St. Louis Cardinals in the 85 World Series, the I-70 Showdown Series. <laughs> ABC Sports presents... The 1985 World Series from Royal Stadium in Kansas City. The Cardinals were trying to win their 10th championship. The Royals, their first. The Cardinals win the first two at Royal Stadium, which is crushing. So critical game three was played at Bush Stadium in St. Louis. And in the fifth, George Brett gets on. You come to the plate and hit a two-run blast. He hits a high drive to deep left field and Landrum goes back but watches this one go out of there. <laughs> well, you know, that was uh, the count was 2-0, and uh, Andy Hart, he's, a, he's primarily a fastball pitcher, and I just wanted to get a pitch that I could really just get the bat hit out front, and he threw it right uh, middle end up a little bit, and I was able to hit it out of the ballpark. Probably the, probably the furthest home run I've ever hit. Uh, it just went out into the tunnel, and that's where they had the Anheuser-Busch Eagle kind of flapping out there. And it went down underneath there, disappeared. I think I think Tito Landry was in left field. He just took a couple steps and just sort of watched it go. That one was well back and out of here, and it's four nothing Kansas City. I knew they hit it pretty well, but uh, we needed that victory uh, really, really bad. And, I mean, we had gone through that three one deficit with the Blue Jays in the playoffs, and we were kind of headed back that same way. So our team, uh, really, that team just showed so much character. I'm really proud of it. Well, and if you had to point to a moment that turned the series, I think that was it. The Royals end up winning game three, six to one, lose game four, win game five. And now we come to game six where things get interesting. It's the bottom of the ninth and the Cardinals are leading one to zero and are three outs away from a world championship. The Cardinals had gone into the ninth inning leading 97 times that year. They had won all 97 games. On an 0-2 count, the Royals' Jorge Orta chops a ball to the right side of the infield. It's fielded by Jack Clark, who throws to pitcher Todd Worrell, who ran to cover the back. Little swiver to the right side. Worrell raises 
throw doesn't get him. Worrell got to the bag in an argument here, and here comes Herzog. And with the benefit of replay, we can see now that he was, in fact, out. Manager Whitey Herzog comes out of the dugout, pleads his case to no avail. The Royals go on to win game six, two to one. There were very few people in that ballpark that night going into the ninth inning who thought the Cardinals were going to lose that game. They're up one to zero. Sure, it's just a one-run lead. But Todd Worrell, Todd Worrell, the rookie phenom, is on the mound and fully expected to close this thing out. So there was actually champagne in the Cardinals clubhouse and plastic covering their lockers. That's the environment they walk into after losing game six when they thought they were going to win. You got to believe, Frank, that that got in their heads, that they just weren't able to let go of that call. You know, uh, it was really like a slow burn leading up to that. I think uh, it started off with, with, the, with the play at first base, a controversial play at first base. And then when that settled down, then Jack Clark missed a pop-up. He pops it up in foul ground, and Clark comes over to the dugout with Porter, and Clark doesn't know where he is and can't make the play. And then there was a base hit, and then we went to bunt runners over, and they forced a the runner at third. And then the next uh, hitter came up. There was a pass ball, which was second and third. Then they walked. Get who they walked. And then uh, Dane Orge, who we got from the Cardinals, came up and got the big hit for us to win that game. And and I think that there was such a big momentum swing after winning that game that we really felt that we couldn't wait to play the next game. And I was thinking back to the 86 uh, World Series when the ball goes through Buckner's legs. And and when you see that, you in your mind, you're thinking, oh, that was game seven. Uh, but it was actually game six. Right. And with the same thing with the uh, with us winning that game. And then with the controversial play at first, that's what the Cardinals hung on to was that play. And I really think that going into game seven, they were still thinking about that play and not well, thinking about that they had another game to play. But but I think what happened when we got to game seven, because Tudor had already beaten us twice. And when Daryl Molly hit the two-run homer, you could just you could just feel the momentum just start to switch. And all of a sudden, the floodgates opened before the, by the fifth inning. Uh, we were up 10 to nothing. And and it was all about, let's get this game over with. And I, and I always think that when you got the advantage and then you lose a tough game like game six of the World Series in 86, if you're the team that uh, lost the game, rather than saying, okay, let's get that game, let's think about game seven, let's go, they still hinge on that. So every time you see that series, they show Bill Buckner and the ball going through his legs, but they still had another game to play. Even with playing the controversial play at first, they still had another game to play. And they had their best pitcher on the mound going. And they just was hung on. It was hung up on that play. They couldn't get rid of it. And I think that gave us the advantage uh, going into game seven. The uh, Royals won game seven at Royal Stadium 11-0. The Kansas City Royals are the 1985 world champions. Getting the first world championship for uh, the city of Kansas City. And the first team ever, by the way, to win the World Series after losing the first two games at home. Yeah. <laughs> and and the Royals also came back from a 3-1 deficit in the 85 ALCS with against the Blue Jays. I mean, did you yes. guys did you just feel like this was a team of destiny? You know, I don't know whether when you get so many games you start losing a game, okay, we'll get them tomorrow. We lose, we lose another game, we'll get them tomorrow, but but then when there's no tomorrows, then all your energy goes into that one game and you just go from one game to the next game. Like in the Blue Jays series, we felt that if we could tie it up at 3-3, then even though Dave Steve, their best pitcher, had beaten us twice, game seven, something about the momentum switches, and it seemed like they think they got you. Then all of a sudden, you hear you down to the game that's going to decide who goes. And even game seven of that series, uh, I think Sunberg hit a three-run double with the bases loaded, and after that, the floodgates opened. And that's after facing the guy that already beaten it twice. 
So I think this is a momentum switch you get when you're trying to catch up and all of a sudden you, you got it even. And then you say, OK, we got the momentum now. And then you, you just take it and run with it. And that's what we did. Well, it's a year and a championship that the city of Kansas City will never, ever forget. And you were not ever, not ever. (laughs) You were a huge part of that. Okay, I'll get you out on this. Okay, so, Frank, if I'm in Kansas City, I got a half hour or an hour to eat lunch and I need to eat some good barbecue. What's the one place I have to go? Well, I would say the Gates Barbecue, but I I would probably have you call ahead and 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 grab it and keep going. 30 minutes is not enough time. (laughs) (laughs) I need more. I need more time. Yeah. Yeah, you'd have to eat it, you'd have to eat it on the run. You'd have to eat it in taxi or something. But uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> when you can get barbecue, thirty minutes is just not just not enough time. Yeah. Okay. So Gates Barbecue, right? Uh, that's my favorite, yes. All right. Well, Frank White, 18 years of the Kansas City Royals, finishing your career with over 2,000 hits, five-time All-Star, eight-time Gold Glove winner, Silver Slugger Award winner, 1980 ALCS MVP, and uh, 85 World Champion and member of the Kansas City Royals Hall of Fame. So thankful for the time today and, and uh, traveling back and, and reflecting on some of these great moments in Royals history. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really, I, I mean, I love talking baseball, so uh, thank you for uh, adding me to your podcast. All right. Take care. Have a great day. You too. Have a good one. Thank you. I'll tell you what, that guy right there could play some second base. And I am so bummed because I was in Kansas City last year and I wish I had known Frank then because I would have loved to take him out for some barbecue and Gates. Sounds like a place to go. <laughs> so maybe it's time for another trip. I want to thank our producers, Xavier Guerra, Michael Ortman, Mandy Zaflakis, Briggs Buckingham, and Mike Dunn. A reminder, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just go to any of the platforms that you happen to be on and search Lost Ballparks. And don't miss next week. Season 2 finale of the Lost Ballparks podcast with our special guest, Hall of Famer, Andre Dawson. Have a great week. We'll talk to you then.